one of my favorite metrics certainly is uh, like num- just number of releases that your organization is able to push out per day. You know, yeah. That's the mindset to have or you know, per hour. Because you know, I'm never happy. But uh, you know, that's kind of uh, the mindset of go get away certainly from this any any thinking of you know having a release every two weeks or yeah. you know even even less than that. Just mm-hmm. like every single change you do, you should ultimately just push it out. And that's yeah. a healthy organization. Every and that drives so many good behaviors. It drives so many good uh, indicators in the company if if you have that in place. Hello and welcome to DevOpsona. Measuring the overall success of product development can be frustrating because there are so many metrics to choose from. Just like there are so many tools to collect, analyze, report and act on the metrics. We invited Eero Yuske, VP of Engineering from ISAI and Henry Hämäläinen, Agile coach and product organization coach from Efficode to discuss about R&D effectiveness and how to measure it. Let's listen in what Eero and Henkka have in mind. Thank you for taking time, Eero. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming, Henkka. Thanks, thanks. Very pleased to be here. Uh, we have done something like 50 or so episodes now over there past 16-17 months and this is the first time I've done this face-to-face. I almost didn't think that all of the episodes have been done remotely and it, it feels different to be here but it's it's glad to have you. And I you know I specifically actually asked Hank yeah, if exactly. we could have this live. It actually yeah. feels so much better to, to just meet, meet face-to-face. We've been meeting so much <laughs> online already that feels like it's enough. Yeah so you you know each other from back in time. Yeah, years back. I don't even know from how far. Maybe 2005-ish, something 2005 like that. 2005-ish, yeah. I, you know, the Nokia project where we worked together, I joined 2003 and yeah. then Henkka sometime later. And, yeah, uh, a bit later, yeah. yeah. But somewhere yeah. around that. So quite a long time, 16 years, maybe 15 additional. Yeah. Today we're talking about R&D effectiveness. And, and for people who have been listening to DevOps Sauna for a long time, they might realize that this is a slightly different topic than what we have before. So DevOps, by definition, we haven't been talking about this level of conversations. We have been more into the nitty-gritties of agile, cloud, DevOps, technologies, culture. and But R&D effectiveness is at a far, far higher abstraction level because we talk about the organization and how organizations should be doing things. Um, and there's always this quarrel between if it's R&D effectiveness or is it R&D efficiency? Well, we are going with the effectiveness, but I think both ways are right. Can we get the record straight on what is R&D effectiveness? <laughs> R&D, like, what does that mean for, for our audience? You want to go first? <laughs> I can try, yeah. Kind of uh, for me, the effectiveness overall comes from the end result. You need to be successful in whatever you do as a whole, and that's effectiveness. So, and that, that's basically why we, why we're here today. Is like uh, how to measure the whole is very very difficult. So, of course, we can kind of take smaller pieces from it, but. As overall, you kind of need to look how your products and services are actually doing in the field. And that's how you can measure your effectiveness. And of course, we can kind of go deeper on on this, but that's the difficult part always for me is that when you try to look for two small pieces, you always miss something from the effectiveness. So, So that's the thing that you need to first understand the whole and then you can start kind of going into details. Yeah, I guess, you know, I I agree. I mean, 
start with the end results, right? So ultimately talking about like the products that you're building, you know, somebody's willing to pay for them. That's a really good metric. Like, are you mm. doing well? Are you making profit? But then it's, you know, even, even you're making a, you know, ton of profit, like, uh, let's say Apple. I, mm. I guess it's hard to argue that they wouldn't be doing well, but could they do it, be doing even better? Mm. You know, you don't know, like really. And that's the trick with everybody that are we actually doing well? Okay. We're doing better than the competition, but if everybody else is just just way worse how would we improve and uh, you know guess internally as well i mean the thing that will certainly come to later here as well is that you know at least one really important thing for any organization is that you constantly keep improving against how you're performing internally as well as externally like and you know you want to make sure that you fix any issues and then you measure your get yourself against how you were before and if you're better great but you're still like, okay, well, I was, let's say you'd be measuring with story points, which by the way, I wouldn't recommend. But, you know, mm. if you use story points, if previously you were doing 10, then all of a sudden you're doing 30. Like, is that good? Well, it's probably better, but is it still like, okay, or, you know, or are we actually doing well? So, you know, as to Henka's point, there are just many, many, many metrics that uh, are things that you want to pay attention to. But I think in the end, still, if your company is making profit, probably okay but maybe i'll just continue a bit on that thought is that like uh, because there's no ultimate level of uh, effectiveness like you you, you'll never reach it or if you say that hey now we're effective then you stop improving then you're gonna be in trouble so that's that's the thing like one measure of effectiveness is that like you constantly keep on aiming and going towards the effectiveness and i think that's what, what one of the metrics if you're not improving you you definitely are not effective yeah, absolutely. And I think I keep telling, you know, my teams and, and just important thing to know about me that I'm never happy. You know, also, I mean, that, and that the, the positive thing about that is that, you know, you constantly want to do things better. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's in fact something I keep telling people that look, we, we need to have people in our team who want to celebrate successes because that's ultimately not something I do well. Right. So, but it's, it's coming from this, uh, mindset really of like, you know, it's never good. You know, we could always do better. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, with something great, then, you know, we could always do better. I guess there's the thing that they say about Finns in general that, you know, if you have some other nationalities, they may celebrate and it's a good thing that you celebrate these successes. But, you know, Finns are like, you're splitting an atom and you're like, okay, well, you know, maybe we, could, we should split a smaller atom or something like that. Like there's always something you can do better. That's very low key. Yeah, uh, the, the first thing that the Finn says when somebody reminds us that we are the happiest country in the world, it's like, no, it's not happiness. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's contentment, but it's definitely not happiness. Like, we are, we are not the happiest country in the world. It's yeah. like, whatever that is, but it's not happiness. Absolutely. I remember there was, uh, while living in the States, there was this, uh, this happiest country on, on, on the planet ranking finland wasn't number one then they were probably third or something mm. and denmark was the you know the first one and then 60 minutes they sent like these reporters to copenhagen to yeah. figure out like what what's going on like yeah. you know usa mm. is of course the best place they were like 17 and then they were interviewing these people on streets in, in copenhagen and yeah, people are like, wow, wow, you're the first, uh, the best country in the world, the happiest. Like, hmm, well, okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known. And then they said that, well, I guess we think it would always be worse. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you're happy with what you have. So effectiveness has parts to do with what you do, but it also has parts to do with how you do. Is that the right interpretation? So it's not only that, okay, we whatever we are doing, we're just doing it in a great fashion, but it's also that we are doing the right things. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, the Indresol does matter for for sure, and I think like you, you always need to have the eye on also on the end result. Like there's okay, there might be some wrong ways to go somewhere, but definitely there's no one right way to go somewhere. So so and and I think that's the <laughs> difficulty in overall in product development. Like I, I used to say like ten years ago when I started to be a, a kind of a coach for organizations, I, I definitely knew how every organization should work. Yeah, and then after that I haven't. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, I had the the best way to do everything in mind ten years ago, but then uh, like all the organization have something different, and then you kind mm. of realize more and more, and and kind of you find another way to be effective and, and great. So I think that's the beauty and the difficulty of yeah. it. Did you still find some like fundamentals that have not changed, or? Yeah, I guess one thing is has always been about this like a uh, uh, vision and and kind of uh, there needs to be this product vision and there needs to be this way like where we are heading and then like this stubborn on vision and 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 flexible on details. I think that's one of the key things, right? You 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 need to know where you are going and then you you actually can find the waste there. So I think that's one of the most th- things I've I've seen. If if the company has the good vision, then it, Definitely is possible to get there, but then how they go there might differ. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, often you know one of the well, maybe I'm like Henka. So today, you know, something that I believe in firmly is the uh, I, I keep talking about like vertical teams and then horizontal team, horizontal teams where vertical is the product vision, like what are we building, who is going to buy this, and, and you know what what's the value here, and then you have the horizontal like technology teams who focus really heavily on the how, right, and then ultimately if you're You know, VP of engineering like myself, you know, uh, the role is about balancing the, I mean, I, I want the product side and the, and the what to push extremely hard on what is it that we need to be building. And then I, I bring the balance of like how much, okay, well, you know, we can do that, but this is not how much we should invest in in like scalability and, you know, quality and, and things like that. So that there's a, there's a trade-off. I don't necessarily want the, you know, the product team really to care about those things that much. I mean, of course, tell us like what, mm. what is it? What's the vision? Like how many users are we going to have? Mm. But I want them to be really like gung-ho on, on like these are the things that we really need to build for some, you know, to create, create value. But equally, I'll push back on the, You know that we we have to do this kind of technology investment as well. And if if you visualize it in a you know in a way is that if you only do the the what you're gonna ultimately have this uh, maybe quoting some famous Nokia CEO burning platform that you know it's just gonna collapse. So it's never gonna you know like you're gonna you know go bankrupt in the worst case. And then if you only do the technology investment, you're just gonna build some what's the cathedral in in Barcelona or whatever. Like you know, it's just never gonna be done with it. Uh, and uh, the the sweet spot is somewhere in between, right? Focusing on the how part, I see it as I want to make the angle as as steep as as vertical as possible. There is no inherent value in doing any of this how. The only yeah. reason you do it is to you know maximize the speed of development on the on the product side. So. Mm. You know, if you find an organization where you have a you know really nice good collaboration between the VP of product and VP of engineering, that's probably going to do well. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. I think this goes back to the kind of organizational force theory. I quite common kind of bring up is that like uh, you cannot build an organization perfectly ever. You need to have the balancing forces, and that's yes. what what you actually Absolutely. meant. Like uh, like you need to have a force. To, to go for the how and you need to have a force that go for the what and maybe then also for for the quality which kind of is, is similar to, yeah. to the how but but you need to have these balancing forces there and and I think that's the difficulty like you cannot ever build it so that the processes an organizational chart will actually 
do it all, but you need to have these strong forces that actually will have some some kind of a, maybe fight is not the right term, but like a, this kind of a strong opinions on where this yeah. is going, and, and that kind of a balances it out. Yes. Yeah. Constructive conflicts, as they <laughs> say. Yeah. So it's like it reminds me of this yin and yang image. Where exactly. You have this yes. Black and white areas, but then inside one is a black spot. And inside the other one is a white spot. So there's a little bit of an overlap there. Of course, from an economical standpoint, you could make a very simplistic view saying that the, the question whether we are doing the right thing can be seen in the top line because people are willing to buy it. And the question whether we are doing it the right way can be seen in the bottom line because we can actually make some money out of it, yeah. which would be overly simplistic. And I, I wouldn't be willing to subscribe that. But to extrapolate the question about how to recognize an organization that is or it's not effective. You you both have seen like countless organizations. So how do you tell an effective organization apart from an ineffective organization? R&D from from an R&D standpoint. You want to go first? Yeah, I can <laughs> I can do it this time. The, I think you know going back to Henka's comments earlier like there's like number of things you want to observe that are, you know, that are uh, going going well. Obviously, you know, the things that you already uh, quoted of, uh, you know, just having products that we deliver, somebody's willing to pay for, you know, qualities at the right level, etc., etc. But then, you know, things like, uh, you know, employee happiness. So people are happy actually working in your company. You know, generally also, you know, maybe another rule is that if you have, you want to have the product vision, of course, so you're doing some right things. But after that, if you have smart people working for you, talented people who are happy, you're mm-hmm. also probably doing very well. And then, you know, if you go for raw metrics, you know, I'll, I'll kick off a few, but, you know, flow of, you know, like just getting things through the door, like how yeah. quickly are you able to push stuff out? And one of my favorite metrics certainly is like num- just number of releases that your organization yeah. is able to push out per day. You know, yeah. that's the mindset to have or, you know, per hour, you know, because I'm never happy. But, yeah. uh, you know, that's kind of uh, the mindset of go get away certainly from this. Any, any thinking of, you know, having a release every two weeks or, yeah. you know, even, even, Less than that, just mm-hmm. like every single change you do, you should ultimately just push it out, and that's yeah. a healthy organization. Every and that drives so many good behaviors. It drives so many good uh, indicators in the company if if you have that in place. Yeah, I'll continue on that thought. Is like, uh, of course, just to kind of uh, again get everybody to understanding that like releasing doesn't mean always a commercial release. Mm-hmm. It, it means that it's a potentially releasable, right? Yeah. And that's what you should measure, not that like how often you release to the customer, because that might be mm-hmm. a, like a product management decision, a product decision, right? Yeah. But it's how capable you are releasing like even like every hour, like you said. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it might be clarify maybe with the release, better word to use would be even like a change. So yeah, changing yeah. something. Yeah. 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 A build then after from the build then have the release and then have the release available for customers. So you would look into the cycle time versus lead time. How quickly does it take for an organization to get a requirement for backlog and get it checked into a code base ready for deployment? And exactly. then how, how long does it take for a requirement in the backlog to satisfy the customer requirement in the front line? So the, like, yeah. the end to end. But there might be things that why you would kind of delay the release to the customer because of like your go-to-market activities or something like that. Yeah. So, so that's the reason I 
kind of a would take that out of the kind of a capability to actually release. Yeah, I think you know, technically it's just a few go to nitty details. I mean, I'd like bring the, build the capabilities of, of still being able to push all the changes out to production and uh, have them available under some, you know, condition of flag or something like that. So just like n- none of these activities would hold you back from releasing. So exactly. your R&D engine can just keep on pushing stuff out. And it's actually somebody else's decision or concern even to when to publish it to the mm-hmm. to end users. But don't like build branches in your in your software mm-hmm. uh, version controls and just work truly on one one branch and uh, push everything out as quickly yeah. as you can. Or did you have something? Yeah, you that? earlier mentioned about this story point. I sense that you have a strong opinion about the story. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's just never proven to be very effective. I mean, it, many of these, it tells you something, but it's I, I much rather just focus on having, uh, to Henka's point, a clear vision, what the team is actually building. And uh, the team will know whether they're pushing, you know, being effective or not. Measuring story points. Yeah, I don't know. You can you can game these and, uh, you know. That's what I was about to say. It's like if you if you measure it, that's always a game, right? Yes. It, it yeah. always, every measurement is a yes. game and then you can play your story point game and then you kind of end up, if if, if someone puts focus on story points, you, you end up actually start gaming on it. Like, hey, let's split it. Let's, let's like have it as a bigger one and then even though it's not like intentional but like you can show progress and everybody is pleased that hey now you you get better numbers and then but it doesn't tell anything about your capability actually to kind of get the release out or something like that absolutely and then you know think about this like uh especially when you start tying in these into any bonuses Mm. that's like when it really goes out oh and the same thing with like you know finding bugs or or fixing bugs like uh you know from you know being that as some sort of efficiency metric yeah, like the worst idea ever you know you want to have um, and maybe i'm still searching for the best possible like these hard metrics but uh you know certainly these haven't proven to be the ones so but if i can come back to your kind of uh, where you started the whole whole, whole uh, answer was this kind of a uh, happiness of the team mm. and the kind of a product capability building team i mean the whole team i think if if you measure the product people and the the ones who are who are building the system and then maybe if there are separate people on on devops and testing side then if all of those are happy you, you for sure are a very effective Yeah. And I think that's this, this soft metric, even though it's not really used, but this measuring the happiness of people, it would need to somehow be connected to the kind of uh, the work, because there might be some things that, that are affecting the happiness that are not related to the kind of a building of the product. But if you can somehow connect like how, how happy you are doing this product, then I guess that would be a very good metric. I, again, I don't have the perfect solution yeah. for this, but I, I think that will tell you a lot. Yeah, and you know, maybe if you want to maybe ask about how do how do you measure this happiness, but you know, one one practical way, at least that what I've learned that people generally just want to do is work smart, right? Nobody wants to do like stupid work and, and like yeah. repetitive. And that comes from the what we covered earlier or mentioned earlier about the willingness and desire to continuously improve. Mm. And generally, if you have competent people working for for you and they You, you let them invest in doing this kind of uh, improvement of ways of working, then they will be happy. There's not, you know, not much more than actually people even even need. I mean, uh, of course, you know, the one, one key thing I think in organization which makes a big difference is that if you're making a profit or not. Yeah. And if you're not making a profit, 
that often leads to like suboptimal work being done in a number of yeah. places because the organization is in a rush to yeah. like get stuff out to the market. But you know, truly, when you when you start to be like profitable or break even, and then you can you know just have the team invest in, in continuous improvement. That's like the best source of happiness I've found at least for technical folks. Yeah. And you, you talked about, what, what did you say, the rigor on vision and flexible on the details. I would argue that teams and organizations who understand what their vision is and they can see themselves being part of that, mm. then that invariably leads to better happiness. Because whatever, especially if they have freedom to decide what to do and how they do that. That's the purpose, right? Like yeah. Why do I do this stuff? Yeah. yeah. When we were preparing for this, there was something that Henka, you said and And I like to repeat that and then ask you for more. But you said that the biggest problem with measurement is that it works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what <laughs> it, it might sound funny, but that actually is the, the problem is that like there's there's this quite much proof that when you start to measure something, people will start actually investing time and effort on it. To some it might f- sound funny because like that's why you measure things but but that's the difficulty of it because you're if you're if you're not like what we've been discussing if you cannot measure the whole thing which eventually means that like you need to see it in half a year that what's your bottom line right you you need to have some measurements in between and all of those will actually start guiding the actions of the people mm. and i think that's that's the difficulty of it is that metrics work measuring works and that will lead on to something some behavior and quite easily that behavior is wrong and i think that's the difficulty of of all of these things and i i think we can get back to this one a bit later but then you need to be very very smart on your measurements because of those will guide there and and those are then good in change projects but then if you are just measuring the status quo then that might lead to a kind of a wrong behavior yeah absolutely and you know think about i've already mentioned this like bug counts why wouldn't the team in an extreme case just keep you know implementing issues into their code and, and so that they could fix more bugs if that's especially yeah if that's the metric or how long it's been since i've been in an organization where that was a thing but like lines of code codes produced mm-hmm. by a single developer Exactly. Like, because ultimately you want the exact, well, not the exact opposite. You want people to produce code, but you don't certainly want them to implement long solutions, but really yeah. like, you know, go for tight, uh, tight optimized uh, solutions. Yeah. Or even like, uh, if, if possible, reduce the amount of code. Yes. Like, yeah. that, that's always, if you add one line of code, it, it always slows you down. Yes. Like always. Every line of code slows down the development. That's yeah. what I've said. Is that like, if you can remove the stuff, then that would actually Uh, improve your efficiency. Let me try to connect the highest possible level of abstraction, which is R&D effectiveness. It's probably the lowest level of abstraction, which is the selection of programming language. And you alluded to the thing that if you measure by the bug count, then people might be geared towards writing code that increases, not decreases bugs. Mm-hmm. So roughly speaking, yeah. people are not malicious, but they might inadvertently do that. So statistically speaking, I, I heard something like one in every 20 lines of code has a bug. So if you select a programming language which is dense rather than verbose, so it takes fewer lines to implement the function, statistically speaking, you get fewer bugs because mm-hmm. there are fewer lines. That would suggest to let go of high-level languages, I have to go into the lower-level languages, or other way around and just evaluate it on the basis of how long, how many lines does it take to implement the function. 
and I think it's a fact that if you can write it in, in less lines, uh, the likelihood of having bugs should be be less. But of course, you know, often these, these constructs can be rather complicated, so you need to know what you're doing. Make a couple of points. I read, read something, I think it was yesterday on LinkedIn, or somebody posted in, in some other uh, social media. I forgot what the law was. Uh, it's about Flop's law, Flip's law, something like that. But it basically stated that a good programmer programs well in any language, a bad programmer programs poorly in any language. <laughs> so it's still uh, like a competence game. I think uh, the the strong opinion I have, though, and uh, you know, it, it, it has become increasingly strong uh, as I as I've progressed uh, or gotten older, <laughs> is the strongly typed languages versus loosely typed. Mm. And the, I think the kind of the whole loosely typed languages just leads to this like, illusion of productivity and, and getting a lot of stuff done very quickly mm. at the expense of then building systems that have really complicated issues. Oh yeah. Um, so. You know, that's why I'm, uh, you know, looking at Golang and, and all of these with welcome open arms and, uh, you know, like bring back the, the strongly typed languages and just reduce that, you know, let the compiler actually help you do your programming job. Rust. Yep. Rust, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that often is is not taught is that, like, if you think about bugs or think about things that, like, are considered as bugs. I, I can't recall the exact number, but I think it was something like 20-25% come from something that is not existing in the code. So meaning that like it hasn't been ever written and that's like n- not working because of that, then it doesn't matter what's the code, what's the language you're mm-hmm. writing it because like you never thought of it. Mm. Is that about the fact that like uh, the requirement is not like well defined? Yeah. yeah. I think something like that. So the requirement and also the kind of uh, the happy case or like non-happy cases are not yeah. taught really. There are these kind of uh, might be some, or... yeah, or some like timing issues and stuff like that that quite often actually cause many of the bugs, which are not something that you've ever written the code. You haven't like thought that this kind of might happen. So so that's the uh, kind of, uh, I can't recall the exact study, but I think it was something like 25% of the bugs come from something that is not existing. Like no one has thought really yeah. about this at all. Yeah, it is that like sun is always shining and everything is great and you know nothing ever goes wrong. Yeah, scenarios. Those those tend to be implemented. For me, that's, that's the clear. That's easy to understand. Like it needs to be able to do this, but then you have all these different paths that that can go wrong. You you could argue that much of that can be solved with automated testing because like when you have like fabricated test contents, for instance, and you have automated test cases and things like that, you will be very effectively be able to test the conditions that you cannot conjure those thoughts yourself, but you can develop a test setup and test contents that just statistically speaking happens to catch that situation. So that that would be one. I think that's a good point of discussion is that how much you actually can build up with testing, how much of this effective and finding bugs you can build up with testing. And I, I've even went to the extreme of that, like the idea of testing isn't to find bugs or isn't to build quality. It is actually to kind of make sure that there are no bugs. In a way, you, you, you have it in order to, to make sure that the quality 
is there, but like you wouldn't ever rely on testing to find any bugs. And I think that's, uh, and this goes back to the kind of uh, uh, thinking about like, can you measure the amount of bugs somehow? Have you been effective? Is that like a, in an ideal world, you shouldn't ever find any bugs on testing because then you've mm-hmm. actually done a, a proper work on, on, on developing it. And you're doing quality assurance. And then yeah, you could exactly. Be- the act of finding bugs is basically quality control, where you're controlling that nothing goes off, you know, with bugs, right? But the assurance part is the actual, like, building the, and maybe the last point, the, uh, like, just having enough testing in place to ensure that when you're making changes that the functionality, mm. actually, there's no regression and, and mm. things work as, as expected. And I think this goes back very deeply to this effectiveness uh, discussion, is that, like, if you have to rely on your testing on, to the quality, then most probably there's something wrong wrong in how you're doing. But going back even further to this force discussion, if your quality, I, I, I honestly have seen an organization that had a quality force that like they actually were like the quality was the limiting factor of, and they were finding lots and lots of bugs and they were like investing heavily on, on automation and quality. And what it actually caused is that the effectiveness was very, very low because they kind of uh, affected the whole organization to net, not get these releases out because of they had such an extensive, like two days uh, of their daily, like set of, mm. of, of testing. So, uh, and that's very difficult question overall. I think that like in ideal world, it sounds like it's good to have a lot of automated tests, but then on the real world, that might affect also negatively. Well, I mean, I think it's still like, um, you know, the, the, the problem you're quoting of, of having multiple days for testing, that would most imply that there's it's manual to a large extent. No, it was actually an automatic in this case, but so it just took, it, there was something like 3,500 automatic test cases from the UI level. So. Yeah, but I, mean, I think it's uh, maybe a, a uh, not knowing the exact detail here, but I would I would still think that it's more of a you, you want to pull in the the QA teams as well as the developers to the goal of of being able to release multiple times a day. Yeah, and that should imply that you know that you don't need to test everything, so you can do focus tests. Exactly. Or then you your test automation just runs blazingly fast, and you know you're able to execute this so fast. But you know these UI test cases can often be. You know they're they're bound with real life execution times, right? Because you want to simulate like real life human yeah. cases, and they just take time unless you can like honestly like scale it to be executed on a thousand you know parallel servers or mm. whatever. So then, you know you want to you need to bring the QA along the, for the ride. It's not a, a silo that you have a QA separate from the from the developers, but uh, working together on the same same goal. How do you approach the sort of metrics and effectiveness when you think back to your Introduction of vertical versus horizontal teams. Yeah. If it is so, let me just make it like black and white that the the vertical teams are responsible to have a good what. Mm-hmm. That okay, we have the functionality, which yes. is a customer like it's yes. a functional requirement, and the role of the vertical team is to have a good response and a good solution for the functional requirement. And then you have the horizontal teams that are responsible for non-functional requirements, like whatever that functionality is. It needs to be secure. It needs to be scalable. It needs to be available. Things like like it have highly performing and things like yeah. that. So when you look at the effectiveness metrics, how how does that conversation vary? Talking to the vertical teams versus horizontal teams. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I wish I actually had a 
like uh, thinking about that one while you were asking the question, like, would I have a really good slam dunk, dunk answer for that? But I think I, I was revolving towards uh, the thought of, of uh, you know, these metrics that you want to identify and, and have the teams uh, execute towards should be shared in a way like it, there's not like some things that are for the you know the horizontal and the, and the vertical team right the nature of things that they want to do in terms of what you know for the product is different and uh, specifically like the scalability aspect that that's typically where you know things come from like the, the scalability of being able to serve more users the scalability to have more data in the system and the scalability of the organization to have more developers that can actually work on this asset and you know like be not like everybody's trying to change the same components but you can actually have an architecture where you know different teams can can work on different different parts and uh but you know things like bugs um they should be certainly certainly common Uh, they should not be like uh, these are your bugs and these are our mm. bugs and you need to fight over them. So they, you know some of these metrics you certainly want to make sure that you know the goal is is the is the same for everybody. Mm. If I answered your question there, mm. but, uh, siloing is what you want to. I mean, there's a healthy friction there, yeah, but the mission yeah. is still the same. Like it's yeah. not different. It's Lauri again. To succeed today, you need to make the most of agile practices at scale. A successful DevOps transformation starts with enabling the leadership team and upskilling every role throughout the organization. Successful change at scale relies on the team's capabilities and tools. Many teams have also found the recipe for efficiency by adopting a managed services approach to software development tools. You can find links to our training and managed services offering in the show notes. Now, let's get back to our show. Now I recall what I was about to say a bit earlier, but this this goes back to the kind of uh, exactly to your point about like in effectiveness. I think it's important to understand that in software world, basically not in in, in none else, you always build on top of something, right? Mm. If, if when you measure effectiveness in a product line or something like that, you're always kind of a building a new thing from like you, you can measure the end result right mm. that hey how well this end result actually is working but in software world your end result has always the effect of reusability right mm. how you actually can build on top of that and now it goes back to the coding language if you try to kind of squeeze it down in to very short right you the kind of a reusability part of it is affected. So in my thinking, in the R&D effectiveness, you need to think about the customer value, of course, but you need to also think, what, how does this affect to our future? And I think this right. is the important part, what what has to be understood. And that's, that relates to the coding language discussion also, right? Is that like, you need to always have an eye that, hey, this The, the, we will continue tomorrow and day after tomorrow on these things we've done. Mm. So you, you should always kind of have the reusability part as an important metric of your effectiveness. And I think it comes back to another really important point that, uh, you know, for example, these big players in, in Silicon Valley do quite aggressively, that they re-implement large part of their systems exactly. on a regular basis, pretty frequently actually. And they, they also, you know, they change programming languages. Some of the biggest players implement their own, like Google, you know, yeah. with Golang and whatnot, so that they, you know, optimize for their 
for their needs, but some other companies change programming, programming languages to also ensure that things actually get re-implemented and you just don't carry stuff over from your previous mm-hmm. systems and copy-paste the code to, to mm-hmm. another. Right? So, because that's the like, one of the biggest... I guess challenges that I at least you know felt like I've been tackling most of my career is the is the fact that I mean the you're working on a you know on a train that's moving right so yeah. it might be missing wheels or it's certainly missing like some compartments and yeah. toilets and whatnot and you're building them as you go and some people are actually using it at the same time as you're trying to do your development work and that's that's always the biggest trick of uh, you know things are blazingly fast uh, to develop if nobody's using your product. Right. So, I mean, then you just like keep on going. If it breaks, you're like, okay, well, fine, we'll fix it. But the moment you have like, a, you know, thousands and then tens of thousands of users, you need to be pretty careful how you, yeah. and that, that will start to slow you, slow you really down. But uh, maybe this is one of the vertical, horizontal, you know, big investment discussions that, uh, to your earlier point, that happens uh, is this like, uh, when do we just bite the bullet and, and rebuild like the whole thing? Like, you know, this is, because, you know, the, the, the thing that drives complexity is maybe back to Henka's point also on, on, on the requirements. Like, you know, just like, okay, let's build this. And you don't really necessarily thinking about, like, what are we going to have in two years? Yeah. And then you're building and building. And, uh, you know, ultimately you have something like really complicated. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. I can't, you know, possibly extend this anymore. But what you have, though, is that you have a very clear understanding of, like, this is what the product needs to be. So you can't just ditch the, everything you build, rebuild it again from scratch because software engineers are incredibly fast in doing things if the requirements are like really clear. Mm-hmm. You get tons of stuff done. You really burn most of your time just like iterating and going back and forth on, on you know, should this well, button be red or green or, you know, should it be here or like what the flow actually should be. That's where you spend most of your time. We have this thesis, we, we have this product, uh, future of product development thesis and one of our theses is that uh, your current technology will kill your effectiveness. And I think this is yes. poorly understood. Yes. Like whatever you are doing now, it will kill your effectiveness in, in whatever three to five years or seven years, depending on what you do. And I think this is, I don't even, I, I don't have an answer who, I think this goes back to that the forces, you need to have the product force and you need to have the technological force. Mm. If you only rely on the product force, meaning that the product management gets to say, they will never kind of understand this part. And that's the reason you need to have the strong technological focus on in your company who kind of will drive you to actually build up the things again. Yeah. And kind of... A and I think it's like a, even, if, even if they would understand, which some of them probably I can yeah. uh, it's just the fact that I was like saying earlier that I want these people to focus on focus is like incredibly important in any organization and so just like you can't do you know multiple things at once like one person is doing one thing at a time I mean they won't be doing uh, multiple things at once and it's just on an organization level that also scales to be true like the organization can really just be do one thing at, at a time you can split the organization into smaller pieces you can uh, so one another law that I always preach on uh, preach is the Conway's law, right? So your architecture looks like your organization, and yeah. vice versa. You can change either one, but that's the way to build like multi-threading in your organization. So you truly have like areas that are not dependent on each other. So then they can execute, they can plan on their own. They not they don't need to wait for something else from some from some other team. But otherwise, you know, individual teams or units working on stuff, they can only do one thing at a time. That's just mm. the way it is. 
And we could easily go to the kind of a scale that's our frameworks and all who kind of uh, mm. are actually the whole idea is that we build an organization model to how to handle complexity. But you should actually build an organizational model that don't have the complexity. Yeah. Because, and I think that's, yes. that's uh, again, but maybe that's another discussion overall yeah. podcast to have. But I think that's the idea that came to me from this, that like we're talking so much about collaboration between all the teams. And then yeah. suddenly you say that, hey, do you do, and, and by the way, I do agree, but yeah. you're, you're saying that, hey, by the Conway's law, if you build an organization that is very connected, That means your system will be Absolutely. very connected. Be and I think that's a good finding and yes. thinking that like uh, yeah. that there, there's the other side of the connectiveness in, yeah. inside the organization. Then you actually will build, end up building an organization, uh, a system that is very complex yeah. and connected. And that's a, that's a really like uh, think about again people leading engineering organization and the people leading a product organization, right? The conversation to have is, uh, you know, the what is actually like the vision in a way the product team for example what are the products that we truly want to uh, build because we can build an architecture to match that if mm. we would have that vision but we rarely have strong enough understanding on on like what that needs to be and equally you know we'll come up with something on the architecture side which is good for you know the use cases we're building and you know known scalability and all that then mm. And the whole kind of a platform thinking for me quite often platform means that we have no idea of the vision <laughs> Like, yeah, that's like let's build everything. a platform yeah. so then we can use it for whatever. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is kind of like it's a bit of a cop out, you know, in the organization, right? So that you know, we you know, we really don't know all the we don't know all the use cases. So we'll build a you know. So maybe the chances are that you don't know any of the use cases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah don't, like there are very good platforms. Yes. Don't think it the other way. But like too often it is used as a like a, because of we don't want to choose, we build a platform and then yeah. we can build whatever on top of it so, yeah. so. what i often say myself is that we, we can do we can do anything like i mean the important thing is that uh, we all collectively kind of understand like what are we doing and why we're doing it in a certain way and the important being, thing being that we made these assumptions today they may change and if that happens we do need to invest in rethinking how this i mean this we're not building some massive you know great system that will scale will try but we probably won't scale into all the ideas that people may have so in that sense it's just fair to then to be able to tell the engineers that look pause these are the new requirements if we can reuse what we have great we can also blow it up and just rebuild it yeah and what i said earlier like it's really fast to build stuff when you know what you're doing if you have a good vision and, and there's there, there must be a trade of between let's be prepared to whatever happens and uh, let's decide to be really good at something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And generally that's the Silicon Valley, Valley mindset, right? So be good at something. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how you build your business. Like you do something really well and then you replicate it. Yeah. You don't try to do like, well, prepare for everything yeah. you, know, you can possibly do under the sun. But Yeah. You, Henka, mentioned the concept of measuring change versus indicators so if we think yeah. about all of this what we have discussed if you could open that a little more and then we could seamlessly transition to the follow-up question about the north star metric because i believe some of that is connected yeah it's important to understand again that the metrics work right so metrics will affect the behavior and uh, that then for for me is that like if you want to have a change let's say that you you want to invest on a quality 
then you can actually measure the quality very close with, with like amount of test cases, your pass rate, your, your bugs, and then you can get the change happening to somewhere. But then it is important to understand that that's a change metric. After you get to a certain level, you should stop measuring it or at least have like a, a, a a transition as an indicator metric. What I mean with an indicator metric is that those are like you have your metric of how warm your your house is, right? And if if it is somewhere around 22 to 24 or whatever the normal is, you don't need to care, right? That's mm-hmm. the indicator mm-hmm. metric. But then if it goes high or low, that's the point you should have a plan, right? What, what do I do if it is 19 or 18? Yeah. Yeah. Then, th- and that's what I mean by indicator metric. You have a certain indicator metrics in your organization, but those are just on the background and you, you don't need to care about those. And then you actually have these change metrics, which are purposefully on red, meaning that you are going towards something. And then when you get somewhere, then you actually kind of... Uh, stop it to be a change metric and then maybe think should it should this be an indicator metric that we won't ever go again to this direction. That's what I mean this change metric, indicator metric. Those are different. So the North Star. <laughs> <laughs> so North Star is is a concept of like uh, w- what would be the one metric to tell about the effect. If there's only one thing you, you, you can measure. So what would be a North Star metric for product product organization effectiveness try to maybe say do you, do you already have air on mind or well <laughs> i think with the way you framed it now <laughs> I, I, you know i was thinking about this you know for the for the development organization alone i really if and if i'd have to pick one i don't think it's realistic to have one but the, the number of releases and the pace uh, mm-hmm. the flow is really really a good uh, way to look at it because that that leads to a lot of or should lead to a really you know a set of like other good things that's, and that's how you want to have the North Star metric obviously yeah. that you know it leads to a uh, hundred different good things yeah. so you're you know going to selecting it that way so I don't know really know if I have anything better than that but you know the way I was like listening to Henka talk there it's like can't neglect the importance of just thinking about are we making money with these products like and how are those like just business metrics looking like mm. uh, that is really really important um important aspect so i don't know if you have anything better <laughs> yeah i think we could maybe answer in well, if you're in a SaaS business or something like that that you actually get the quick feedback of the customers then i think you could should have the north star metric somewhere from there right you can get the quick feedback of the customer but then if you are in the b2b world or some kind of other world that that like your, your sales cycle is such a long that you you actually cannot rely on on this customer metrics. Then I, I I tend to agree with Eero that like this ability to release to customer, meaning that the readiness to release points. I think that would be maybe the the best because it's hard to see how an organization could be too good on it. Mm. I mean, w- what's the limit? If you can uh, release four times a day, why wouldn't it be better to release five times a day? <laughs> I mean, mm. that, like, yeah. there, there isn't like, there's no limit for better on that one, basically. It, you should always have a well-working software and, and capability to, to, to release. So I would either maybe go from, from those. The last April Fool's Day, we 
law, we announced a press release of a continuous deployment keyboard. That was, of course, a tongue-in-cheek, but every time you press the button on a keyboard, it will build and deploy. So that's the, that's the ultimate outcome where you can. Absolutely. Of course, a lot of code is going to not compile yeah. because you forgot the semi, you couldn't get to the semicolon yet. So like every 80th of build will compile because that's how you press the semicolon. Yeah, so result, that's get, why it was April Fool's Day. Yeah, but you get feedback on every... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, but it's a good point actually that Henke was making here on the, I mean, this, this number of releases per day is obviously very SaaS centric mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. granted my my background and uh well, like the last 10 years or so working on on that so mm-hmm. if you're doing something else it's it's a bit different than, yeah there know. are still many many organizations who really can when there's hardware included it, it might take even years to build up the product and that's all right mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean again that you wouldn't have the capability to learn fast yeah. i mean you you have some uh prototype version of the hardware mm-hmm. uh, you you kind of release against it and you learn and test and i think there is the capability to actually get the release integrated to the system and then get the feedback and i think this Yeah. It are the same, even though you cannot release it to the like actual customer outside, but you should be able to release to the kind of a integrated environment and get the feedback. Yeah. yeah, I think one more item I, I do want to mention. I mean, I mean the business metrics are important, of course, but uh, I am a firm believer in the and uh, I think this is the third time I mentioned the employee happiness and, and happiness yeah. of people working there. So it is just a really good, really good indicator if people are. Competent people are happy working, and you know you could argue that well, you know they might be happy because they don't have to like do anything, or they don't, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want. But that's really yeah, that's I not a driver. No. No. <laughs> I mean, people want to do a good job and they want to do meaningful work. And uh, if you publish your financial results, they'll also you know be happy if they're good, and they'll yeah, be unhappy. If yes. So I mean that's a, that's a really you know maybe that's the thing if if you measure one thing it's it's your just employee uh, happiness is, is is the thing. If I can spend a few minutes with this is that like a, too often it is seen as an HR thing, right? Are people happy? Mm-hmm. Is seen that like do we have all the bells and whistles? Mm-hmm. And I think those don't really matter. Like if if you're doing a, a, a interesting job with efficient organization with the good purpose. You, the good, colleagues. Who, good colleagues yes. you, you will be happy and then the bells and whistles don't matter and then uh, and with bells and whistles I mean all this kind of uh, what type of coffee machine yeah, you, perks. Have, yeah, <laughs> you perks. have yeah. so these perks don't really really like matter and I think that's uh, I, I agree that that is yeah. very very important and I think that should be something to to understand and, and measure yeah. Yeah, we can introduce a new term bring your own perks we just give the teams <laughs> fund and say okay you don't like coffee well you go get your own perks here's the money that was one as we mentioned on on netflix specifically right and their their compensation package has always been I mean, the philosophy has been that just give people a big salary and then also i mean they have perks and they had free lunches i believe but you know then like for some of the things that you would normally get dictated or given to you by u.s companies they would just give you like here's the you know thirty thousand dollars and yeah. you can spend it however way you want yeah. and specifically you know of course you spend it most of it on on healthcare right yeah because you could choose not to have healthcare at all 
Yeah. Or you could spend it all on really good healthcare. But you know, the culture that they wanted to you know build is like independence on every single thing in the organization and encourage mm-hmm. the fact that that you know we expect you to make decisions on a daily basis, every single one of you, and it starts with your compensation package. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, it's a cult- and th- these are all cultural things, of course. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can or you know would do the same, yeah. but uh, that's that's uh, something they did. One last thing which we cannot ignore is the considerations for the technology solutions around measuring R&D effectiveness. So, of course, we can we can walk around and ask mm-hmm. people how happy they feel, and then we can take a sample and calculate different factors, and and then we can feel good about that. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't consider that as a technology solution. Now, especially considering that those metrics are going to, some of them are going to be a change metrics, and some of them are going to be mm-hmm. indicators of the current situation. Some of them have to do with the culture and, and the organization and people, and some of them have to do with what is actually going on in your pipeline, for instance. So what are your considerations for the technology solutions? And then maybe if, if you have good examples, good examples of measuring R&D effectiveness. Good examples. Good examples. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think we all have examples. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I don't answer uh, di- directly the good examples yet, but for me it's always that like when you're a SaaS company, you basically have no excuse on not having the metrics there, right? You have actually live data of your system mm. and live data on building the system, meaning all of these like agile and ALM tools and product development tools, right? And and build pipelines. So you have all the possibilities to actually have the indicators there build up that hey everything is fine <laughs> our temperature in the organization is good everything is all so you should be able to have all of these in a SaaS environment and now getting back have anyone done it probably <laughs> not not really still a lot of work to, you know, to build it right and maybe you know one one point I want to make is that you know these things are so I'm a sort of found myself now to be this, uh, kind of a scale-up guy, right? So yeah. I, you know, previous organization where I was, we grew from, when I joined, we were putting five people in Helsinki and then we were 160 globally when yeah. I uh, left. And then also in the current organization, we have tripled the team in the, you know, during the COVID time. So there's like heavy growth, right? Yeah. You know, it has a big impact on also what you want to measure or You don't want to measure mm-hmm. like it's a completely different organization if you have five or if you have 15, if you have 50, yeah. if you have 100, 150, right? So that's a big impact on this as well. And uh, maybe I'll use that as a bit of a cop out for my own uh, <coughs> organizations where we, you know, haven't done this because there are just tons of things to do. But I, I know, you know, in, in the current team we have, we're investing a lot in in uh, you know continuous deployment and uh, we're investing a lot in monitoring and you know just getting these these data data. Uh, exposed and like the biggest uh, thing slowing you down is again i think the the moving metaphor of the train which no has no wheels and, and or you have to change those wheels and you have to build stuff as, as you you know limp along and uh, that's that's what slows you down when you do these things yeah one good example i get got could tell i haven't asked from them so maybe i don't mention the name of the organization but they were in the scale-up phase also they actually had this as a SaaS service in their office they had this metrics about the customers fr- from daily like how many customers you got in how many yeah. left and that was like a big tv in their office spaces and i think that was kind of a, something that everyone at least knew and had this kind of a idea of where you were with this this system hey 
now we're getting customers, now we're losing customers. And, and you actually got that feedback like for the product development yeah. organization. So I think that is definitely something in a SaaS, especially in SaaS consumer business, you should have like easily available about the, yeah. the data. As long as people, like everybody in the organization also you couple that with the, the, the feeling of being empowered to take action yeah. immediately True. on these. Mm. Right? And not just True. like observe like, ooh, things are going wrong. I better, you know, update my CV. <laughs> like, because that's the, maybe the classic reason of what, you know, people tend to think that information is not being shared is, is because, well, it's power. But the other thing is just like there's something mm. bad about it, which is, of course, a really bad reason not to disclose anything. Because however bad it is, people generally think that it's even worse, you know, if you're not disclosing how things are actually going. And I'll just continue on, on your, your earlier thought on why building metrics is something that is not, it's, it's never really a thing when things are going all right. And I think that's one of the things like you, you always tend to invest on metrics and measuring when you have a clue that something isn't going well and you need to figure out what it is. So I think this goes back to the very, very original question. What is effectiveness? How you measure it? And then when you tend to actually have something wrong, you tend to build a metric in order to kind of understand. And I think then my success then as a kind of a final thought that maybe you should have these very simple indicator metrics from the very beginning that, hey, let's just let this whole thing be running if these indicator metrics are all right. We get the releases out, we get the customers be okay, and we get the people to be happy. If these are all right, we let's focus on the content, let's focus on the vision, let's focus on continuous improvement. Maybe that would be kind of my final thought in this this uh, uh, topic. Yeah, and uh, not to try to you know dodge the question that Lapa asked. Like, do you have any good examples? I think we. I just maybe I'm uneasy answering and saying confidently that uh, you know we've have good examples because then we the way I feel is like we've my teams, for example, we've emphasized, you know, many of these things that we're talking about here. We've emphasized employee happiness importance. We've emphasized the, you know, number of releases going out. That's actually something with, you know, at AlphaSense, my previous company, we, we did measure as, a, as an actual metrics, uh, metric that how many are we are we uh, pushing out. And there were some other metrics as well, but that was the only one I really remember, like what was the like a key, key metric for myself. So, and that did work very well. And, you know, the driving again the the overall organization to you know to behave um, or you know to to work towards the, a, a common goal and sure you know we have tons of pain in the beginning and uh, like you know folks also question like is this really a thing like why are we doing what's the value here but mm-hmm. i think it eventually it, it did work out well as, as a as a good metric uh, for us to push for but in addition to that you're and maybe you know that's that's something to take away from this conversation as well to, to uh, organ my organization is that we should really be a bit have more rigor in uh, tracking some of these things and not just like yeah we you know we, we kind of want to improve these things but are we really like measuring and just maybe to come back to Henka's point uh, made a couple of times this uh, if you measure it it will improve so still like once you set the metric that you change really, the behavior yes. let's put it this way yeah, can yeah, improve true. Or <laughs> yes. something will change most likely <laughs> so you want to make sure that you know what you have as a, as a as a goal is is something that you truly think that will make a you know positive difference yeah. exactly and that's the reason i wanted to say that like improvement is always an opinion right yes <laughs> in, in this context right like because of the only thing that you 
genuinely improve is your bottom line, maybe. And then everything else is an Im- kind of an opinion whether this takes us that direction. Yes. And that's the reason I, I always say that metrics change the behavior and then that might take to a wrong or right direction. And no one knows until that kind of uh, the bottom line actually shows up. Yeah. And yeah. that's the difficulty of all of this. Yeah. 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 Not long ago, we had an event with our customers in Switzerland and we had somebody using a number from one of our customers saying that they do 90,000 builds a day. And you you got this wave of whoa in the audience where mm. where you, you put out this number and first of all, you can put out the number and second, the number is big. Mm-hmm. And it's so big that if you haven't done a pipeline like that, then it blows you away. Like how can anyone do 90,000 builds a day? Anyway. That's a, that's a good number to bear in mind. And I think that's also what you alluded earlier, that the and number of builds is, is a good metric there. Yeah, yeah. not knowing exactly, does it mean that it's a, a releasable, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably get some feedback out of it. And, you, know, <laughs> you, can, you can react if something's going wrong. But I remember, you know, maybe 20, 20 years ago, company we worked for uh, at that point you know the mindset was still such that i remember still really having like build machines dedicated to do builds on the on the mm. you know phone software then you know we were trying to set up this this system where you know you push a change and it would always do a build and yeah. you know we would get a new version and then and like the conversations back then with the you know the, the version control the, the configuration management teams were like no we do this every two weeks like, you know, so, you, you know, give us the latest and then we integrate and then, then we're like, so why can't we just do it like this? Like you have the machines, like the CPU is mm-hmm. idling, you know, it's it's actually, it's right there. And we just went, and we actually, I think we ended up doing it ourselves. Like we yeah. bought the machine and we just did it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. hugely helpful, you yeah. know, in just getting instant feedback. And we had some test automation and then we had some folks who were able to test, you know, the, the like intermediate bills and whatnot. But the, yeah. the, the whole organization was wired towards this uh, every two weeks cycle. Yeah. And then there was this massive like integration smoke, and then pray, sacrifice a goat, and then let's hope yeah. it works right. Yeah, yeah. the Different whole ones. idea of like agile is about learning rather than basically delivering value. It's about, of course, the delivering value is there, but like yep. the most important part is fast feedback, which actually equals learning. Yes. And yeah. I think this is somehow misunderstood in so many yes. places. Like you, you concentrate on so many other things rather than like yes. you should always, and that's the reason of, of like the, the builds and releases, what we've been discussing, yeah. right? You should have the fastest possible way to get the feedback from the big kind of uh, environment. And I think that's, that's yeah, the yes, point. Yes, absolutely. We really could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I said this earlier. Like, I guess this episode could easily take an all day. But I think it has uh, time to stop. So uh, I'd like to thank you both of you, Henka and Eero, for joining. It's been a wonderful conversation on R&D effectiveness. And I, I'm going to reveal that we have secured somebody else to talk on the same subject, uh, R&D effectiveness, but they are not going to talk about in terms of metrics, but they're going to talk in terms of how do you run the change through your organization mm-hmm. and how do you figure out what to do and then how do you make it happen? So it's going to be a different perspective. 
Thank you for listening. If you want to continue the conversation with Eero and Henry, you can find their social media profiles from the show notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, let's give floor to Eero and Henka to introduce themselves. I say now, take care of yourselves and remember to push out new releases like There's No Tomorrow. My name is Eero Juske. Been a software guy since as, as long as I can remember. So uh, just a shock to find or realize that I'm going to reach my 25th anniversary working in software business uh, next May. In fact, I have an anniversary date in my calendar actually. And uh, you know, before that, uh, even work, you know, uh, had an Amiga computer, PCs, a lot of programming before going to the university and then being in software business uh, in actual uh, work. Uh, Did actual work in the early stage of my career and then moved on. Drifted to management and uh, uh, worked a long time in Nokia and then uh, d- did a gig at the uh, scale up after moving back from the States. Uh, did a gig at a, a scale up here called AlphaSense, which I mentioned earlier. We, we grew that from five to 160. After that, I guess I got the seven year each. I got the opportunity to join a space startup. Uh, so I'm working currently at a company called iSci here, uh, based in Okanemi Espo. And uh, similar scale-up journey and uh, taking a lot of the learnings I've had in AlphaSense and applying, trying to apply them uh, to the space industry as well. And we are hiring, so <laughs> check our website. I'm Henry Hamelainen, uh, nowadays working at Efficode. I've been uh, kind of an agile coach, product organization coach for, for 10 years. Before that, the career at Nokia where we met with Videro and uh, had had the luxury to work with so many different organizations like other and there are Finnair and ABB and Kone and then also like the, the real SaaS companies and uh, have been seeing maybe 50 to 100 different kind of organizations and that always gives you perspective on how, how to do things differently. Like I said, I, I knew how to things, things should be done 10 years ago and nowadays I, I've learned that I don't still know the all, but uh, always learning like like it, it, it's related to this subject. So, so thanks everyone for, for listening. <laughs>